everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. This is Eric Newcomer, and I'm here with Tom Dotan. We've got a very exciting guest, Emil Michael, uh, the former chief business officer at Uber and the right-hand man to Travis Kalanick is joining us. Emil was Uber's chief dealmaker. He was instrumental in the company's battle in China. And Emil had his hand in almost every pot at Uber from 2013 to 2017, uh, helped it raise uh, those billions and billions of dollars. Uh, 15, tr- 15. 15, exactly. <laughs> uh, certainly. A- That's like on the back of your baseball card, you know, like <laughs> career stats, raise 15 billion. <laughs> Controversial figure, I think we can say, portrayed as sort of a shady character on the TV series Super Pumped. Uh, though, as you'll soon hear and probably have already picked up, uh, Neil is much more a chatty extrovert than I think the character uh, in his show. Uh, we're going to talk about the Uber files, uh, the latest sort of investigative journalism into Travis Kalanick era Uber, uh, spearheaded by The Guardian. And we'll talk a little bit about Super Pumped. Uh, but, you know, I think there's so much like sort of the real world Uber to talk about. Uh, Emil is a critic of both how the media has covered Uber over the years and somewhat, I think, uh, or definitely a critic of the current CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi. So we'll talk about that. Tom and I have both spent so much time uh, covering Uber, you know, me earlier and him later. And so this is this is a dream, you know, uh, to talk to you sort of on the record. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here. In a way, the podcast was always headed towards this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Controversial. We're gonna come, we'll come back to that, Eric. <laughs> I just wanted to, like, what is, like, the heyday of Uber to you? Or, like, you know, everybody listening to this podcast knows Uber and sort of, like, you know, the magic of it at the time. But just, like, did you like raising all the money, the China thing? Or, like, what was to you, like, what made, like, Uber so fun? Or, like, what was, like, the good – what were the good old days of Uber? You know, I joined in 2013, and that was before – Uber had raised the money from from Google. So so before that, Uber's market cap was like $300 million, right? And this was, it was still a small company, 200 people, three to five cities. Um, 14 was when sort of the whole thing accelerated, like almost vertically. We used to joke that it was almost vertical that was bending back in terms of how the business was was growing. And... The, that is when we raised from the thir- the seventeen billion dollar round, which shook sort of fundraising for the first time. Right at that time, two companies had raised these you know, deck the unicorn round. Airbnb and Dropbox have both been done a ten billion dollar round. And when we were raising money, we used to call them Comp A and Comp D, and we <laughs> said like, look how much better our business is than Comp A and Comp D. We raised that $17 billion round. We launched in China. We launched in Russia. And then going into 2015, we launched Uber Eats. We did successive rounds that went from $17 billion to 40 to 50 to 72, all between June of 14 and June of 16. So that 24 months was an insane amount of growth, progress, valuation increase we that at the end of 16 or august of 16 we sold the business in china to china which at the time that meant we went from you know we spent two billion in china it turned into what was worth 10 billion at the time so those those were the good days and and to give you credit for it here like where it's due the fundraising and aggressive 
you know, uh, valuation st structure and strategy, that's your working, right? I mean, that really was something that you devised and led and kind of made your signature almost throughout your time at the company, right? That, that was the thing I was most known for and spent the most time on. And Travis and I sort of agreed on what we thought was sort of more of a purist approach to this. You guys have been around fundraising for startups for, for a lot of your careers. We did this thing that was actually characterized in the in the show a little bit called the home show, right? And, and what that meant really, besides being the fact that it was at our office, was we'd never asked for a price. We never said, here's the valuation we want, like a lot of companies do. We said, here's the data. We're going to do three meetings a day for 10 business days. So we're going to meet 30 investors, right? And you are going to, these investors, if you're interested, you put a bid in of how much you want to spend, uh, invest, and at what valuation. And we decided, the only thing we decided is we want to raise a billion dollars or 1.5 billion. And we put a spreadsheet together and whoever bid above the price which yielded the amount of money we raised, that was it. We closed the deal. Even if you like somebody, you didn't help people come to the right price ever? We've, it was, the whole idea of this was to have it be market-based. And if you start doing this, well, this is a price we want, you get into a negotiation and everyone feels bad at the end because you feel like you left money on the table. They feel like they overpaid. So this was sort of a purist auction uh, kind of thing you could imagine for a private company. Just while we're talking about pricing, because it is fascinating, like the Saudi round, the 69, 72, whatever, pre-post money, like, did they overpay? Did you think they overpaid in, with, with what we know now? Did they overpay? Because that, that question matters so much for evaluating Dara's leadership, right? If you peg that price as fair, he looks really bad. If it was like an insane price to pay, he could look better. I mean, would, yeah, is that a fair price to benchmark him against? Was it a reasonable price? Well, I mean, Tiger Global paid that price. <laughs> Capital recent. Well, yeah, I, mean, I know. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, sort of. The, I sure. Who paid that price? Right. I think Mark Stad and Dragoneer paid that price. Like all the sophisticated Capital Research paid that price. BlackRock played that price. Like everyone. That was one big round. That was the biggest round ever done. Five and a half billion dollars. Three and a half which which Saudis, and Saudis didn't price that. The the sophisticated late stage financial guys priced it. Saudis joined it. There was sort of a follow-on. Based on where we were growing, uh, and that round was done in 16, that was a valid price. I think that price today, had we had we continued, and we could debate this more if you want, I think the company would have been worth two, 300 billion today, and that would have been a great price to pay. Right. Uh, and before we get to, you know, where you know, Uber is today and the Uber files and all the stuff we want to get into in this episode, you know, as we're in kind of the positive reminiscing of things. I mean, that to you is what you remember the most fondly of, of your time, you know, at, at the top of Uber is kind of the rocket ship fundraising experience being part of this once at the time thought of like once in a generation company and sort of accelerating its growth through fueling its fundraising, all that stuff. I mean, is there anything else you kind of hang on to? Yeah. It was, so so the notion that Amer an American tech company could do business in China was incredible at the time. I don't know if you remember, it was a lot of optimism in U.S.-China relations in 2015, totally. 16. Zuckerberg was going there trying to convince President Xi to get Facebook launched. He was learning Mandarin. He was learning Mandarin. 
LinkedIn had launched a subsidiary out there. Airbnb had launched a subsidiary out there. WeWork, all the companies were trying to get in. And, and Uber was the most successful of that crowd. And it was really exciting to be there at the time for that. So that was really a mind-blowing experience as well. And I mean, working with Travis, I mean, describe that because I feel like the show, I mean, a lot of people know, even sort of people are extremely critical of Travis, say, oh, the Travis and Super Pump doesn't really reflect any of his virtues. Like you worked so closely with him. I mean, what, what was that working relationship like? And what, What's he like? Like, what's sort of that? What's that style? I think he's one of the best entrepreneurs of this generation. And what his superpower was and is, was thinking globally from day one. And he was a why not versus why? Like, why not try China? And they're like, well, Facebook failed, Google failed, da, da, da. He said, but, but why are we going to fail there? And you didn't have a good answer. And he was right. And, and here's an example of it. If you're a mayor in a big Chinese city and you had Didi there, you didn't want a monopoly on ride sharing. You wanted competition. So we would go there and the mayors was like, can we please keep you here in China, in Chengdu? So we had this thing and, and he was right that we were just there and we were in a digital business and we didn't have the same sort of overhang on censorship and all that that some of the social medias did, but we were on the ground business. And he was right about that. So he was just incredibly ambitious he was never a chess beating ape like the show made it sound to be. He actually hate where we sat in the office was the quietest part of the office because he didn't like noise. We didn't like people yelling. So it was sort of a really weird characterization of him. But he's also he's not Brian Chesky. He wasn't the 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 soft and fuzzy. Right. right. But, well, then this gets us well into the Uber files stuff because I mean I feel like the why not attitude, right, is sort of the explanation for some of it. You've you've referred to the early days mentality as almost like pirates, you know, and obviously there was sort of an express uh, decision on the part of legal um, to operate in sort of gray areas following the experience with Lyft and others launching peer-to-peer ride sharing in San, San Francisco. So that, that's sort of an organizing principle to me. I mean, Tom, do you want to sort of frame up the Uber files real quickly? Yeah, sure. The Uber files, which came out a couple of weeks ago, are this massive trove of documents, 125,000 if you are into numbers, uh, that were released by a whistleblower to uh, the UK Guardian and the ICIJ and a bunch of newspapers around the world, not me, that uh, detailed essentially Uber's expansion into Europe. The whistleblower turned out to be this guy, Mark McGann. But basically, the bulk of these files are internal communications between high-level Uber execs, including Travis, uh, that explained Uber's policy strategy in, I mean, I would argue, kind of brute forcing its way onto the continent. And, you know, these files begat a series of articles. Uh, essentially, if I had to boil them down, the big reveals here were Uber used this tool uh, like Grayball, which essentially dupes regulators. Uh, there's this kill switch, which wipes computers inside the... Which I'd reported years ago. I knew ago. you were going to jump in with that. A lot of the Uber files have been reported. We can talk about that. But but so there's the kill switch. You know, there's also very aggressive lobbying of officials in Europe, like Macron in France, which was kind of funny to me. Uh, British officials, there was some pretty kind of arrogant emails about Biden. I, I took the lobbying as like Uber's good at its job. Right. Just one last thing to kind of frame it up for people who haven't read all of these articles, too many articles, by the way, is that, you know, these, these stories came out a couple weeks ago. I don't think they made the hugest splash. 
The outcome is sort of unclear. There is some talk of maybe an inquiry of Macron and the French government. You know, there's a bit of blowback in, in London, you know, based on the way they forced their way in there. But that's sort of been it. But the whole episode kind of exhumed the messiest time Maybe Eric would argue the funnest time of covering Uber. Right. Now we get to talk about that era of Uber now that Emil's got enough distance that he's willing to be open about it. He's not paranoid right. that it just happened. So it's an excuse yeah. for us to relitigate the old right. days, which <laughs> Emil's just smiling. I'm ready to know what he's, his reaction to all this. Right. Well, and I know you'll smile the biggest at this part of it, Emil, because the last thing I'll say is that Uber's response to almost all of this stuff has been like Kanye from 808 and Heartbreaks. Like, I know I did some things, but that was the old me. <laughs> so that's it. That's the Uber files. Uh, I know, Emil, you have a lot to say about it here, and I set it up a lot here, but what's uh, <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> What's your mind, actually, as, you know, the articles first come out and, you know, they end up being all about your time at the company? You know, uh, the ICIJ, I think, is an inc- was an incredible organization, right? The things they did with the Panama Papers, like, I mean, it's truly revolutionary, groundbreaking stuff. I was surprised they took this on five years after it. And it really, if you end up with the opposition party in France saying, hey, Macron, you should not be talking to CEOs of companies that are trying to do business in France. And that's it. You know, that's the backdrop. That's what they did with 80 journalists and all these hundreds of thousands of documents. I just, it would seem unimpressive. Now I'm biased on that. But, you know, the example of, of Travis saying about the Biden thing, like, oh, every minute he doesn't spend with, you know, he's late, he doesn't spend with me. I guess humor's lost. Wait, what? Sorry, say say it again. There was this comment that. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. That felt like a tra- classic Travis, where he's like, he's going to get less time with me. Of like, he's, yeah. But you think so, it was a joke, or yeah. you think it was a, it was a joke? Yes. Okay. I was with Travis then. I was with Travis as he walked into the Biden meeting. But it's a joke, as in. It's funny to people to think of Travis having so much swagger that he would say that somewhat sincerely, or a like. That, is that the type of joke? Or it's a joke that reflects a level of, I'm really important too, you know? Or or he doesn't think he... Or, yeah, explain the joke. <laughs> explain the joke. <laughs> it's a joke that <laughs> that we were characterized as these arrogant bros. Right. So, hey, every time he doesn't get to, you know, he, every minute he's late, he doesn't get to spend a minute with me. Right. It was that kind of thing. And then just by the way, just for fact, to add to, add to the fact... He sat with Biden. I was there. And then Biden's like, wow, this was fun. You should stay for this meeting I'm having with the chancellor and so on. And Travis like, awesome. I could stay with you. And they, they hung out for like two hours and did foreign policy meetings. Right. So this wasn't it wasn't like Travis was like, I'm out of here, buddy. Right. You know, you've lost your time with me. It, it was a it was a fun thing. So which is such a classic media thing that everything comes across so humorless <laughs> if it's like part of a headline story. I'll add to it, though, that one of the things that really struck me about the files themselves as it relates to the politicians is it spoke so much to the era of how much a lot of political leaders wanted to be cozy with tech. And it seems the pendulum has swung, maybe not the full direction the other way, but during the Obama era specifically, and I guess this is also touching a little bit to Trump, there was a real connection between politicians and tech, seeing it as this upstart, innovative, socially progressive uh, uh, industry that they wanted to be attached to. One, because there was a lot of money, but also was like, okay, I don't, it's bad to cozy up to Wall Street. But these tech guys in, you know, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, that I can do. That makes me look cool. Let's all go work there after after Obama's done. And and I think you could kind of see a little bit of that with, you know, Macron maybe and 
to a lesser extent, Biden. But it just seemed generally there was like a warmth between politicians and, and tech that in retrospect seems a bit misguided. I mean, you could you, misguided is your word in your opinion. But I would say like when when Obama went down to Cuba to open it up, he took Brian Chesky with him. You know, he took when Macron was finance minister, his whole platform was we need more tech companies to be doing business in France and to hire our own people um, so that they can get experience in it. Xavier Neal, all the big French industrialists really wanted tech companies to establish in France, especially if they were on the ground tech companies, not digital, where they took all the money out. Because remember, for Uber, 80% of the money went to drivers who were local. The employees were local and they were paid salaries there. So we, we weren't more extractive like the last set of tech companies. Um, and politicians absolutely wanted to, to know us and other tech companies. That was nothing new. So when they say aggressive lobbying, I don't know. I mean, does does President Biden meet with foreign CEOs when they come to the U.S.? Of course he does. So I, th- this thing wasn't, none of it was illegal. No, nothing in the ICIJ said any of this was wrong. They said it was aggressive. Right. And it was aggressive. We were growing aggressively. So what's wrong with that? The lobbying, it's not like, oh, they were promising him a job or something. It makes sense. Uber was a high stakes sort of policy issue that politicians were campaigning on and against. And so it made sense that you would go to the top, you know, the most powerful person you could to get them to weigh in on an issue. Um, yeah, that, that one doesn't resonate with me. Well, but the fact is also that Uber did end up Please correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm not the expert on this era that you guys are. But Uber ends up going into a lot of these countries fairly un, you know, with not a ton of huge pushback that stops them from doing more or less what they wanted to do. Right. They were kind of untrammeled entering into these places and ends up getting into, you know, a lot of spats with uh, taxi unions in the country. And there is, you know, one of the revelations in the Uber files is Travis saying pretty blithely, if there's violence in France, you know, between the Uber drivers and the taxi union, that's good for us because, you know, violence puts the union in a bad light. I mean, those sort of things seem like Uber was in contravenes with policy, with regulation and with, you know, the local taxi unions that I think a lot of people find pretty unsavory. I mean, let's take a minute and talk about taxi organizations all over the world. These are government-created monopolies where the taxi medallion owners in most big cities around the world are cozy with politicians. They protected the number of medallions so there was no competition. The taxi drivers themselves were essentially paid like indentured servants. They took people right off uh, the immigration lines and they said, you're going to rent this taxi for $800 a week and you don't make a single dollar until your fares exceed that. We're not going to drop you off in Harlem. We're not going to pick up black people. I mean, this was a corrupt, nasty industry in almost every city in the world. So it is absolutely true that to go in and get your business model to be accepted, you couldn't ask like, hey, can I, are we allowed to do ride sharing here, guys? Like maybe, you know, you had to really show consumers and drivers a better path. And there's a reason why. By ignoring regulation. Or, or, or there was a vacuum. In a lot of places, there was just no regulation, right? And some of the, the regulations were anti-consumer. In Miami, for example, you could not price a ride for less than $50 if you were in a taxi. Couldn't do it. How's that pro-consumer? So, yes, if, that, if we broke that regulation, who's benefiting and who's losing there? I want to answer Tom's thing because regula- Uber's breaking regulations, breaking regulations, breaking So Airbnb was breaking regulations. 
the taxi union, the taxi medallions themselves were anti they were violating antitrust laws. You know, in many states in the U.S., the state can sue a municipality for antitrust behavior, and they weren't enforcing that against their own taxi operations in these cities. So there was this this industry was ugly, dark. It was really dirty, and you had to. Uh, do something if you were on a ride share do to exist. And by the way, two thirds of the world now has ride sharing. And what would the world be like if no one ever tried to break the taxi uh, antitrust monopoly? And it is a fair criticism that a lot of these Uber haters take Ubers. Like yes. I feel like some people try to roll their eyes. It's like, no, you believe that the service is so essential that it was worth like fighting for. I, I yeah, I, I don't know that. Not to be pro, too, you know. Yeah, I agree with Uber people on that. Yeah, it's just so you can have your view as that no business should should break an unfair regulation in order to give consumers a taste of what it would be like to have a service that met their needs. That's an argument one can make. And then, but you have to make the same thing with Airbnb and lots of other uh, businesses that do that. On the on the kill switch thing that you wrote about, Eric, almost all tech companies do this in foreign countries. And the reason why is that if they're connected to the main database of the company, they don't want any one government raid to sort of expose all the company's data, including their user data, which they get fined for and have to disclose to FTC. So they have a shutdown. That's separate from a subpoena. If you got a subpoena, Uber or any company, and said, we want these documents, they're entitled to them. And no one's ever accused Uber of not providing documents that any law enforcement agency asked for. And that's why what Eric says is there was no consequences because there was just nothing illegal about shutting down computers if there's not a warrant that says, I need this, that, or the other. Well, let's not talk about shutting down computers, though, right? This is wiping of hard drives. I mean, this is like... No, there wasn't. But the, no, no one accused him of wiping. Even Jill Hazelbaker's statement saying we, and nothing was ever wiped. Okay. Re read the stuff. They're locking okay. it down. Locking down is different than wipe. What wipe is a total Okay, that, that, so that's slightly different than what companies do like in China, say, where I think a kill switch had been fairly, you know, de facto for a lot of companies. And that, to me, I could be wrong here, and if I am, I'll cut it. Uh, I mean, that is wiping of, 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 of drives to prevent the government from... Yeah, what, what, wiping of drives is a whole different ballgame. That's destruction of evidence, which is illegal almost right. anywhere, okay. right? But, okay, okay. But, but shutting down so that you have a proper warrant and you're giving them exactly what they ask for is not illegal. I, I do think one of the bad things we did at Uber was naming things terribly. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the kill switch. <laughs> Real contrition there. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, okay. And I guess you would probably include within that gray ball, although I don't, what is yeah. that even in reference gray to? Gray ball. Hell Why? was one of them. Uh, yeah. War room, <laughs> hell, gray ball. Like these things were, were meant to be provocative, but they took on the life of the You guys world. leaned into the pirates motif for sure. But since we're on the regulation side of things, I mean, looking back on this now, everything that was explored in the Uber files and stuff that Mike Isaac wrote about with Grayball and Eric, we already talked about the kill switch. You think it was all justified. You think there was no other way that Uber could have approached any of these countries, uh, entered a way that was maybe more in accordance with regulation, wouldn't have seen as, you know, uh, a well-funded tech American tech company barging into these places, upending things and sort of letting the pieces fall where they may. You don't think it could have gone done any differently. Uh, I mean, no, I, I think in any one instance, it probably could have been done differently, but you didn't know ahead of time what the resistance was and what it wasn't. And sometimes that pen, depended on who was in charge, what was the enforcement. Um, so you had to take bets. 
on what it was going to be like. And, and, you know, we were kicked out of Germany, South Korea. There's some countries that like were effective at, at uh, resisting uh, Uber. Um, all you, all you could say, Tom, is that like, we could have gone slower and I think we just would have been in less places. Well, okay, slower in that case sort of sounds obviously bad as an investment. You know, it sounds like it's maybe not as pro-consumer, although maybe we can get into that. But it's also, you know, government and, you know, uh, people deciding to have input on the way business is conducted in their countries is just fundamentally slower than a business. I mean, that's just the way large masses of people work. Yeah. So so if you want to do get pre-regulated, Uber wouldn't exist today. I mean, it just it's you can't have it both ways. Like you had you had monopolies controlling the transportation systems, donating to politicians, protecting their hide. When you're saying monopolies, though, you mean unions, right? You mean a taxi union? Medallion system. The medallions. Medallions. Okay. Okay. And they were never going to relent, no matter how slow, no matter how lobbying, how much lobbying you did, unless you showed consumers something else that was better. And once you did that, consumers told their politicians, we want that. And that was a deliberate strategy. So Mm -hmm. there was no other way to break that monopoly. Mm -hmm. There's so many criticisms of Uber, some some more substantive, some less. Like, I feel like a challenge with discussing all this has become such like a laundry list. And I think we would all probably agree that the public's sort of like the things they hate Uber for the most are not necessarily like, to me, the best reasons, at least to, to object to Uber. The the most viral thing that happened was like delete Uber, which had to do with like the tie to Trump. It was like super, super incoherent. You've said on other interviews that Uber had some like, you know, it grew too fast and have good corporate culture, but there's certainly a degree to which the lens was on Uber in a way that it wasn't on other companies. And if Oracle or somebody sustained the level of like, I don't know, corporate culture investigation, I would suspect that it would have had troubling stories too. Then there's sort of this sort of gray area regulation, sort of fighting with governments area. I mean, I think how the drivers are treated to me is like the clearest, like real sort of moral issue at play. Some people would say like the independent contractor like system is just like unredeemable. I don't, I wouldn't say that. The like the leasing program was something that I wrote about back in the early days where you got, there were cases where, you know, drivers, and this is sort of illustrated in the driver video where drivers get sort of like hooked uh, or they're making money on Uber. They want to make it their career. They might lease a vehicle. And then they're sort of, basically you're offloading the capital to the drivers. And then, you know, they're, they're sort of the ones taking the risk without necessarily knowing where Uber's business is going to go. I mean, do you, do you think Uber has been good for drivers? And do you, do you agree that that's sort of the area where a sort of like the moral sort of criticism is, is the most significant. You know, it's a hard thing, and I'll give you, a, I think the history of this is important, right? Uber started with black cars. The black car driver who loved Uber at the time was one who had a two-hour job in the morning, a three-hour job at night, and they're like, holy cow, in the middle, I can make additional money, and this was great, and I could do these short trips and so on, and the prices were high. It was geared toward the black car customer, Right. And then Uber started to say, like, these drivers started to say, well, hey, why why don't I just do this full time? I have full control of my schedule. I can make more money and so on. 
Um, and that whole thing kind of worked and drivers were relatively happy. It's really when you got to UberX that you started to have hard decisions to make because you had a black car driver who was doing this for a living, right? And then you had an alternative that was half the price. And they'd say, the black car driver would say, well, hold on, my customers are now going to do this other UberX thing and I'm going to lose them and they're they're half price. So you started to say like, okay, we had different price points for different products. It One was cannibalizing the other. So is that a... So what is the the ethics or the morality of that? I don't know. It's a hard question because, you know, it was a better product that had more applicability. And some people decided I'd rather pay half the price and be in a less nice car. Right. That was that was one stage. The second stage where it was you had these bonuses. Come drive for Uber. You get 50 rides. You get a five hundred dollar bonus or whatever. And people if they came to think that that was going to go on forever, they felt really let down when that didn't last forever. But a lot of businesses do that. You get a free month of Spotify, you get a free this to entice you to try it, but that deal doesn't last forever. I think the hard part here is if you quit your job to join Uber or you leased a car to join Uber with an expectation that you were going to make this much money over time, you felt bad, and there was there is something there. And and Uber, to to be clear, you know, I remember is 2013 or 2014. Uber was actively putting out stats that were just unrealistic about the amount of money that a driver could make on the platform. And I remember there were stories saying that drivers in D.C. or some city were making ninety thousand dollars a year. Yeah, it was New York. Is New York? Yeah. Bullshit, right? I mean, the, 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 how many drivers were ever making that much money in a way that could be justifiably promoted to people as you know an income you could make on this platform? Yeah, I think that that particular instance, I think Uber got fined for for that piece. But that was, you know, for for advertising, that was ninety thousand. When it wasn't the average, like yes, there was a, definitely drivers who made more than ninety thousand, but it wasn't the average, and so it gave an impression that wasn't right. Good. And Uber definitely did a lot of like hiding the ball on how much drivers were like full time versus part time, and the messaging would be very aggressive about the part time drivers when there were certainly people who were making. Their careers. Yeah, but what? But what? To go back to what changed? What's changed? And this is even before Dara's regime took over. Is the driver base turned into 80, 90 percent part time, ten hours a week or less? Because of food, or no? It just or because the, it just burned through. Or, it just people just didn't want to do it for a living. They had other things that they would do that were more full time. But for whatever reason, is it turned into more of a hey, I didn't want to take my girlfriend out to dinner this Friday. I need to drive and make some money. I want to buy right. a Christmas gift. So it turned into a gap filler as opposed to a profession. And that's where it gets weird again, because then you're like, okay, these people actually, you've seen the surveys, they don't want to be employees. They want to be, they want to do this for a little bit. They want to do DoorDash. They want to not work for three weeks. And so now it's ironic that we're trying to give like, you know, some people are talking about giving employment benefits to people who don't want them because they're actually doing it so little time of their week that it doesn't make sense. It actually made more sense when the black car drivers were doing it full time. Then they they were kind of closer to being employees because of the amount of time and the reliance they had on the system. So so that's why there was different eras of of how Uber treated drivers and and what were the mistakes in each era. It's it's difficult, I think, for, for drivers, because the sense I get from talking to them is that 
you know, the union is so, it's such a complicated concept for, for a lot of them. It doesn't really apply. And the way unions are structured now, because so many of them are part-time, because they drop in and out. And yet what they really want is reliability of income. And I, I actually disagree with you. I do think they want some sort of benefits. I think the system as it's, you know, the b- broader U.S. healthcare system and, and other kind of insurance systems are set up so poorly now that they just look towards some sort of company to providing for them. And, you know, what exists now with Prop 22 is not very satisfying to a lot of people. But, yeah, you know, I actually don't think they, they don't want benefits. I do think they, they want something. They want some sort of security. And, and Uber kind of sort of provides that, but not in a way that's reliable. And, and I think the proof in the pudding is that there is such high turnover, right, that no driver sticks on the platform for more than a couple months. I mean, Uber is just churning constantly through, through a driver base, and it's never gotten better. I think this is necessarily a job function that is a temporary filler. It's become that way. Now, you can say Uber made it that way or it's become that way. Regardless, it is that way. I do think someone driving 40 hours a week has to be thought of differently than someone who's doing it eight hours a week and then doing DoorDash and then going to school and then, you know have a their income spread over a lot of different places. And yeah, there has to be some way. Uh, and that's why, frankly, I think Obamacare is a good, you know, broad change from the healthcare regime in the U.S. before that. And so, yes, could it? Could you conceptually say that this person is making 10% of their income from Uber, they should com- contribute 10% toward the benefits that they would get if they were a full-time employee? Yeah, there's, some, there's something like that there that probably makes sense that's fair. Mm-hmm. But what else, how, what else, there's no perfect system here. Yeah. Right? You take a Lyft ride, you take an Uber ride, you do DoorDash, you do, you know, you do your home on Airbnb. It's like people are just amalgamating a lot of different income streams. And how do you deal with that? That's a, that's a national problem. It's not just an Uber problem. Yeah. I actually, before we move fully off of the Uber files, I do want to get to the response that Uber, the company had to it. Uh, you, you, people can't see it unless we release the video, but Emil is shaking his head and rolling his eyes. I mean, like I said in, in my intro of it, basically Uber says that isn't us anymore. That was that regime. They love throwing Travis and, and you and that whole era under the bus as a response to any sort of reminder of what you guys were doing. What do you think? I mean, what a gaslighting. Like, I, I was stunned. They said, you know, don't judge us by what we did five years ago, just as what we did in the last five years. In the last five years, Uber stock prices dropped in half. They've been sued by the DOJ for overcharging disabled people. They have 20,000 civil rights law, you know, uh, disputes with, it, uh, with, with people. They just had 500 women sue them for sexual assault. I mean, come on. Like, the financial performance has been terrible. There's been 90% attrition. You know, all the DOJ has done things because this is a hard business. So give me a break. Um, number two, insanity is a lot of the people who are doing these things in Europe with kill switches and Macron are still there. The Nelly, Crow, Nelly Crows, that wasn't like a Travis, hey, let's create an advisory board with all these European politicians. That was the policy team. And the person who wrote that document was on the team running the advisory board that got Nelly Crows there. So it's sort of like, are you kidding me? Um, and Pierre Dimitri, was, his quote was like a hostage statement. Like <laughs> Pierre Dimitri is the head of Uber Eats right now. So he's, you know. Who is, uh, you know, someone who crosses both both eras of Uber. Yeah. And, and he's like, I'm sorry, I was just a young, I was young and immature. And I was, run, I was being led by unethical people. You're like, this guy was a Goldman Sachs banker, a hedge fund guy in his 30s. 
had never apologized for since then. And all of a sudden now it's the bad old guys from seven years ago who made this poor young Goldman Sachs hedge fund manager do things they didn't want to do. Like, give me a break. Well, there, there is an argument that strategically, the thing that Travis was so bad at was contrition or apologizing, whichever way you want to put it. And Dara is obviously a professional at this point. <laughs> Apologizer. Eh, I mean, uh, the Khashoggi incident suggests otherwise. That was a that was a pretty bad one, but but wait, sure, yes. I, wait, Dara? What? Yeah, don't you remember after Uber took money from the Saudis, Dara has this interview with, oh, I believe, sort of Axios, like, and they bring up, yeah. like, how do all you right. feel about taking money from the Saudis when they dismembered James Khashoggi? And they're just like, you know, we all make mistakes. Uh, which, you know, they had to apologize for that, but, but yeah. Why wasn't Travis able to like show, you agree with that criticism, right? I mean, I know he's your friend, but like, he's not very good at apologizing. I mean, he apologized a lot in 2017, <laughs> but I think he, uh, I, uh, as did I, but I, I think that I actually, I do think in, with, with some, in some hindsight that it's okay to say we did things wrong and here's how we're going to do them better and to, and to be accountable for for doing things better. Uh, and we just didn't. I will say, like, you imagine being in the most important company in the world for some period of time that was growing faster than any other company had ever grown. The problems you're seeing are coming nonstop because you have a real on-the-ground business. I mean, transportation is no joke. People people die in accidents. I mean, there, it is a real world thing and it's in big cities every day. And every, we used to say that everything that happens in a city happens in an Uber and it's true. So the flood of what was happening was really intense and no one had ever done it before. There was no playbook. Um, so yeah, we made mistakes and probably should have said more, but not the mistakes that I think people talk about as much as they should. Wait, yeah. What are those mistakes? <laughs> what are those mistakes that you think? Yeah, I think, and I've talked about this before, the one thing I wish I'd done differently, and I'll take responsibility for this, is, is the revenue was growing like this, right? 989 degrees. And the company building was growing at like 50 degrees, 45 degrees. And that, that, that's, that causes a dissonance. You're not building guardrails and HR legal finance that keep a company stable. Okay, I've heard you say this. This is what I want to push back. Like, yeah, a lot of the key to Uber, I mean, you and Travis, especially, were good at really drilling down. Like some of the most flattering things people say about Travis is when he has your attention and he's like jamming with you and sort of saying, let's solve this. And you know, I, we can't go through every one of these controversies and prove that Travis knew what, but there's definitely a sense that Travis was definitely enthusiastic about creative solutions around whether it's like geofencing with Apple or, you know, these technologies, Travis was aware of them. Like it was sort of part of his sort of ingenuity, right? I mean, so it wasn't just like, to me, the, the things that you guys were criticized for besides maybe the Susan Fowler category were sort of ideas where it wasn't, it wasn't a bureaucracy problem. It was a sort of judgment question. Well, I was, I was, I was talking about taking charge in Susan Fowler's uh, situations. Like you, you need to have a system that deals with bad behavior inside a company. And most companies in the last five years have realized like their systems have been inadequate, right? And so that was one thing I wish we'd done better. Um, on the financial discipline thing, like the leasing cars out to drivers, it was kind of an experiment and it didn't work, you, you know? And so you had to, you know, should we have done more study and more pilots beforehand? Sure. When you talk about things like the geofencing, yeah, those were pure mistakes, but the whole Tim Cook series, you know, thing was just, this is where I get to my criticism meter was just, just out of control false. You're saying the meeting as depicted 
uh, in Mike Isaac's big New York Times story with Tim Cook and Travis didn't happen as it was like he Travis met with Tim Cook, but but not in the way that is described in the story. Yeah, and I remember arguing through Jill with Mike. I said, Mike, the only four people in the room. This is Jill Hazelbaker, the head of yeah. communications. At the, the only four people in the room were me, Travis, Tim Cook, and Eddie Q. Only four of us. Me and Travis are telling you that this never happened. Tim Cook didn't chastise us. He didn't. We never discussed the geofencing. It never happened. And I called Eddie and I was like, Eddie, can you guys tell also please tell them? He's like, we don't comment on anything ever. So I was like, okay, so great. So we're having an article written where the four people in the room, none of them, two of them are saying it never happened. Two of them are not commenting. And yet you're going to write a whole article about it that turns into a whole episode on a show. It was, in, it was sort of otherworldly. I was like, I, I don't know how to combat this. So what, so what did happen then? What's the accurate, as you see it, re- representation of that meeting? Yeah, so there was... The meeting with Eddie Q and Phil Schiller about the geofencing stuff happened, but it wasn't Tim Cook. It wasn't, and it was us hat in hand coming down to uh, Cupertino saying, here's exactly what happened and why we did it. We were wrong. We'll never do it again. And it was really about fraud. We were losing $10 million a week because of what was happening with the wiping of iPhones and stolen credit cards. And then we would love to work with you on fixing this problem when for the next two years, we work with Apple and actually solving a fraud problem that that would have in worldwide on that. Tim Cook had nothing to do with that. When we went to Tim Cook, we were talking about driverless cars. Should we build maps together? We would be the first customer to use Apple pay. It was a totally different, but he was insulated from that. So just, you know, the Tim Cook part of it never happens. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, we, we were talking about Jill and, and obviously I want to talk about, you know, Bill Gurley too. The funny thing about all this is I, you know, I sort of enjoy all of your company, but yet you guys all, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, there's a lot of resentment all around. I mean, isn't there like- This is Bill Gurley, you know, the, the benchmark partner. <laughs> uh, this is a, why can't you guys all get along? You're all, you know, uh, I mean, isn't there, I mean, you and Travis had sort of a, there was a moral crusade and then we believe Uber, we don't believe in the sort of the government regulation. But then I do think there was a certain like- amorality and sort of like the regulatory, you know, it's sort of like they're gray zones. We can operate. We're making deals. Like people can make deals with us or not. Like, isn't there the same sort of like if they decide they think you guys have pushed it too far, it's hurting their reputation. They're going to make less money. Like they can like try and push, push you out. What do you think Gurley and crew did that was so wrong? And like, like the strategy makes sense to me that if you're going to push out, like you guys got absolute control for Travis as part of the Saudi deal. So then it became very hard for them to replace the CEO, which maybe Gurley should have never agreed to, but like it was a very high valuation and very good terms. And then, so the only way to really push Travis out was a total like surprise attack, full on war. Don't you as a tactician agree that their strategy, there was no nice way to do it. Like they did it the only way, if you want to get rid of Travis, that's the only way to do it. Well, (laughs) God, so many thoughts. So the, the benchmark attack was premeditated and the shoulder, the holder report was a vehicle for that premeditation. They knew ahead of time that their goal was to get Travis out. Gurley said that said so. So And I'm sorry to cut you off here, but the holder report was basically commissioned internally by the company to suss out the culture problems within Uber. It was authored by Eric Holder, the former attorney general. And Travis yeah. signed on to that. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Isn't there public reporting that Rachel Whetstone like said it was a bad idea and Travis still did it? Like he created some of the 
the vehicle for his own demise there. Yeah. Right. And well, and also the conclusion of the report was also that you specifically should be fired. Yeah. So, oh, okay. Let me, let me finish, fellas. <laughs> you can talk. Okay. All right. Pipe okay. down. Uh, this is for the audience. This is for the audience. This is just so people know what we're talking about. We say, hold a report. This is the climax. What do you think? All, All right. right. So, the hold a report was not started to do culture investigation, it was started to investigate the Susan Fowler situation. Gurley had it expanded to include culture. Okay. And because he knew that was an Achilles heel and there were a lot of people could say whatever. The whole report was was basically like, let's talk to a bunch of people, get the, the get their complaints, and then we're going to decide what we want to do with the company. No one had a chance to cross-examine. No one ever heard what someone said about them that they did or didn't do wrong. So it was just it was just a vehicle for, for that usage. And had Gurley honestly ahead of time said, I think Travis should go, raise it in a board meeting, right? And... There were other board members there. Forget the dual class, whatever. That only comes into play, Eric, when there's a vote, right? You could say, hey, I think this company is doing poorly. We need to remove the CEO. After the Holder Report, the board unanimously agreed to let Travis take a leave of absence, right? Right. I think I broke the, the leave of absence by like a second. Fine. The unanimous agreement. Travis's mom died. Benchmark went, sent two people, not girly, didn't have the guts to go himself, sent them to Chicago with two letters. One is smear letter saying, if you don't quit now, we're going to we're going to release all this information on you that looks like a smear or quit now. And by the way, you have no lawyer. There's no lawyer. There's no time. Your mom just died. You just agreed to take a leave of absence that the board agreed upon. The whole board with you, girly, why didn't you say right then that you were going to you were opposed to this leave of absence? You wanted him fired. So it was deception on deception along the way. When, OK, when did you you're when did you first have an inkling the benchmark wanted to replace Travis as CEO? Probably too late. I would say April of 17, May of 17. So how, how far in advance of that of the letter is that? Maybe a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they've been plotting it for a while at that. Point, yeah. Right? Yeah, they yeah. Had, we just. We thought it was a little more honest because we had this subcommittee of the board that was Ariana, Bonnerman, Gurley, who were managing the Holder thing. And they were like, yeah, look, this is going to be an objective report. We're going to make some recommendations. And then only later to realize, like, actually, God, and now I know what this whole thing was about. Um, and Tom, yes, I, the, the Holder report uh, recommended that I be fired. Did you, do you know why? No, please tell me. So that in 2014... One of my employees submitted an expense report that I didn't approve, but my assistant approved. And he had asked for an extension to file that expense report. And I said to the CFO, can you give him more time? Because he didn't have an assistant to help him do an expense report. And so therefore, I'd approved somehow tacitly a $1,000 expense that shouldn't have been expensed. What was the expense? Was it material? Yeah, to the karaoke bar. No, it wasn't material. It was was a pretext. The karaoke bar is sort of the hooker situation. It was a pretext. And and every board member, and and the way they structured the vote on the Holder recommendation, and this was a girly Eric Holder genius thing, you had to vote all or none. So you had to vote on every recommendation or none, which included firing me. Right. So... You could vote on the value change of step on toes. And that was the equivalent of letting go someone on this ridiculous non-violation. And every board member apologized to me after that, including Gurley, because they were like, that was ridiculous. But basically, they had to get rid of me to get to Travis. Right. It was step one. I knew the investors. I knew governance. I was a lawyer. I knew all the board members. I I knew how to make sure Travis wouldn't get ousted. 
And so they had to get me out of the way. That's what I'm saying. This feels like a strategy that if you were on the other side, you would respect. You're like, okay, they play. I mean, the Travis's mom and mom dying is obviously. The, you the, can't respect that. That is, that is uncomfortable. But they were probably, but they were pursuing this strategy way before. That was like uncomfortable for everybody. Don't you think they timed it to them? Well, I even remember actually when, you know, the news came out about his mom dying. I remember seeing Jill Hazelbaker tweeting out you know, her condolences to Travis during this period. It seemed like people were caught in a very difficult, those who had moral pangs about it, in this, like, there was the momentum to push him out, and yet at the same time, a horrible life event had happened to him. How do we both manage that? But also, if you are on the side of the board or think Travis should be gone, push towards something that is maybe, the, for as they thought, the best for the company. Did That's you- just not accurate. So the there was no person besides Benchmark who wanted Travis to resign then. They were all said, well, you take a leave of absence. You need a leave of absence. The the management, Jill, and to her credit, and the management team who, who were saying, like, Travis needs a leave of absence. They weren't asking him to resign. But the executive leadership team, including sort of a lot of these people, Jill and other people we're talking about, wrote a letter saying they thought Travis needed to take this leave. Of, yeah. To take a leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm giving her credit, which is like, everyone agreed. On the board, on the board, and otherwise agreed to a leave of absence, period. And then he was ambushed after his mom died on purpose, without representation, without Gurley doing it himself. Had that moment not happened, I think he would have taken a leave of absence. Did you talk to him? It's mind-boggling. Why did he agree? Why did he agree? Like that? Clearly, in retrospect, he wishes he hadn't. Right? Like, yeah, it was. Look, you you corner. Like I was his right hand man. I was removed a week earlier on a pretext. He was alone. He didn't have counsel. Like. And Ariana does convince him to go along with it, right? She had been very aligned with you guys, and then she turns on him right at the eleventh hour, right? Yeah, but I think she turned on him. She was like, once he decided, she was helping him to write the statement or you know whatever. It's a little foggy exactly how that went down. But no, every single board member voted to approve a leave of absence. There was no vote to remove him. Can I just quickly say one thing? You did bring up, you know, the karaoke incident, which you say was used as a pretext for pushing you out of the company. And, you know, I was a little bit closer to that one because I worked at The Information at the time, which is, you know, the outlet that published the story about the incident with, you know, uh, Gabby, Travis's ex-girlfriend about it. And you sort of played a part in it in that, as the story said, you kind of were texting with Gabby saying, let's put this behind us. Let's not... You know, let's not, you know, someone would argue it was a way to kind of cover it up and not embarrass the company. Do you do you regret the way you handled that situation at all? And do you think it could have been, you know, are you sorry for it? Are you sorry for what you said to to Gabby? And and, and do you think that it's something had you wished the whole thing never happened? You never went to that bar in in, in South Korea. (laughs) So a couple of things and, and I'll tell you. So we definitely should have never gone to that bar. That was 10 employees. Like, no, and I apologize about that. By the way, that was in the Uber HR records at the time. Like, we knew that was bad at the time. It was like, hey, we shouldn't have done this with employees. And by the way, I was at the most senior guy in the room. Travis was there. Gabby was there. I mean, it was a, ten, a group of 10 employees. The local team took us there. It's not like we we're like, hey, let's go to a karaoke bar. Regardless, I was senior and I should have said, this is a dumb idea. We shouldn't do it. All that happened in the karaoke bars, I sang a duet of Sweet Child of Mine with Gabby. The notion that she was unhappy to be there is, is not is not true. She actually was very excited. She was a good singer. She wanted to go there. Mm-hmm. And so the local team and Gabby were like, let's go sing. So we went. These places are shady. They have a shady element to them. 
And I've said this many times, I said this to Amir at the time, Gabby and my wife were best friends. And this was after Travis and she broke up, best friends. And she was on public about her, her eating disorders and things like that. And we care, like my wife cared for her a lot. We were on watch when Travis was away to make sure she had people to talk to. So me calling her that day and the show gets this wrong and I'm really upset about it actually. I called her to say this was happening. This was by the way, all known in the HR department, but this was not a hidden thing. And if the press knew what happened, like, yeah, great. We went to a shady place. It was already reported to HR. We sang, we drank, we went home. Like, what, you know, what do you want me to do? So what, what was I asking Gabby to do? To hide what? There was nothing to hide. But what wasn't the allegation that you were texting her saying, let's not talk about this, right? Like, let's. No, no, no. Okay. no I never texted her about this. I, I called her and said, hey, this is happening. She's like, I don't want anything to do with it. I was like, look, I can't stop reporters from calling you about this. I'm sorry. She said, please keep me out of it. It's like, I'll do my best to keep you out of it. And the only that was it. She then, and then she said, I said, tell people that we only had fun or something like that. It was, yeah, right. And, well, that sounds like a cover up to a lot of people. A cover up of what? Of, of singing and drinking? <laughs> well, we only had fun versus this is a shady place in which there are escorts there. That, But it made her feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, that was the core of her complaint. That's not true. No, no. That's, that's just, that's crazy talk. It was it was it was going to be known that it was a shady place. So having fun, saying we had fun, how does that change whether the place was shady or not? Well, but clearly, look, she <laughs> she must have felt aggrieved by it because she chose to speak to the press and say I was put in a position that I shouldn't have been, and this was later said we just had you know we were just supposed to be having a fun time. That's not the way she felt about it, and that felt like a cover up to her. I, I think you're maybe conflating someone being upset with a breakup um, with someone who actually wanted to go to the karaoke bar, sang songs, had fun, and was using that situation in a way to hurt people who were she was previously close to. Right. Let's not re-exhume a relationship, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Travis's inability to like maintain a good relationship with her does end up hurt. I like I do think his relationship maintaining abilities hurt him. <laughs> I mean, you think that's you too much are, psychoanalyzing? Come but on, y'all. Come on. The, the, come on. The show is so unfair on this point. They try to overlap the Angie relationship with the Gabby thing. It was so unfair. It was very unfair to Angie. They have, she's a, a I very don't know nice her. person. Yeah. They broke up in 2009. I don't think Travis started dating Gabby until 2014. So it wasn't overlap. And, right. and him and Angie still have a great relationship. So I don't, this relationship does he, like when you break up with somebody, it's not happy for one or both parties <laughs> generally. So, you know, what, what do you do? What are you asking a human being to do? Let's talk about the media because I, I, I feel like we need to take some of the heat ourselves here. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the, the media is so many things in that, like in the period, it's like all these scandal stories without a lot of context. And then you get like, you know, I did the fall of Travis story. There are these sort of magazine stories. There's very much like a mood in the media at a given time. But like all the stories to me are sort of like, even when I would write them, it's like, okay, it gives a little bit of what I understand about Uber, but it's just hard in a story to convey it all. Then super pumped becomes like so defining in how most people understand Uber. And now the show, it has like 80,000 people on the finale. You said, so it's small, but it's still like a show. People are lazy and they're more willing to, you know, they watch a show. I don't know. What is, what is the, is there a piece in the media ecosystem that upsets you the most or, 
Or is there, you know, it's such a, you know, it's not like a centralized organized force. What's like the the area where you think is most flawed? I, I think that the, the biggest flaw is sort of trying to look at Uber's faults in a vacuum as opposed to compared to other companies and what what was wrong in corporate cultures, generally speaking, prior to Me Too and how that's changed, how we look at the world and how much more diversity matter, all the things that in the last five years, um, people are looking across all companies and going like, holy cow, CNN had problems, Pinterest had problems. Every company has some versions that was just below, below the radar for a while. And so Uber became this poster child. And I don't think it was that different from any other company in the problems that human beings have when they work together. And they took we took the brunt of it. And it's partly because... I think after the Trump election, people were angry and this notion of being able to to protest by deleting an app and how this whole taxi JFK thing got out of control. And you've said many times to your credit, Eric, that was incoherent, but man. (laughs) Right. The the issue there. So Travis had been on, you know, like a advisory board, but so had a lot of other CEOs, but then Uber, because of hurricanes, stopped implementing surge pricing during crazy incidents. We don't turn on surge pricing during yeah. sensitive areas, protests, hurricanes. There's an whole argument about whether that even makes sense. I think you were initially resistant, uh, not you specifically, but there was some resistance. Anyway, you capitulate on that to please sort of the public mood, even though it's perhaps irrational. And then delete Uber is sparked because you don't have surge pricing, which is then framed as a reason that people won't come to the protest. So it is the ultimate irony that in giving up on your principles to satisfy the mob, the mob still comes <laughs> after you. So I do find it like a truly perverse, but but I blame the public. I mean, Twitter, I mean, the New York, Mike Isaac did run a story about delete Uber that I thought was pretty credulous at the time, but, um, but it was mostly a Twitter mob sort of. It was, but it led to delete Uber. And that led to Travis stepping down from the Trump council that Mary Barrow was on, Elon Musk, you you name it. And by the way, the tech CEOs were all going to see Trump. And this was early 17, right? So, so, and then the drive, you know, the Susan Fowler thing, and then the driver video, which you, you broke, Eric. Um, which ironically, that driver wishes he had Travis back as CEO. And not to... <laughs> he said that the driver, that's another thing. He gets a very charitable, I, I obviously have an affection for him, but uh, the c- kind of person who's going to argue with the CEO of the company you work for spontaneously on a night is probably not as soft and fuzzy as presented <laughs> on a TV show. Yeah. But I mean, right. very, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I would have been as brave as him to confront yeah. Yeah. Travis. So- so, so my criticisms of the press are different than they were back then, where, where I was just like you know defensive. Man, now I'm just like it just wasn't proportional relative to what was happening in the rest of the industry. We had inside leakers, as you know, Eric, who made it worse. So we we didn't know what was coming when, and I just think it was sensationalized to a degree. And I gave you this Tim Cook example that we were just couldn't control it, and. I think today we would have been more savvy about it. I think today you would have had, it would have just been another story amongst the other corporate stories. And, you know, you would have fired this and that. Travis is the one who said boober. I honestly think the boober thing, like 
just the whole once the broy reputation was built and sort of it was so hard to like unwind that yeah i've never understood the boober thing you could tell you could explain that to me gq magazine was was interviewing him i wasn't there at the time i think it was even before my time and he's like oh, are you getting more dates he's like oh he made this boober joke again okay not a great joke but right. it was a joke it was clearly a joke i know tom you did you debated whether the the Biden thing was a joke. It was a joke, but this was definitely a joke. Right. Why? What was so incendiary about that? But I mean, that? this is our this is our take on the, the the TV shows. I mean, we said this before. What people hate the most, like they're more forgiving of the fraudsters than people who remind them of like the guy who was like snide to them or whatever in high school or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like right. Travis has like a chip on his shoulder. He's like, oh yeah, I'm like getting all the girls off this and like sort of has this sort of combative nerd. I feel like people just like, he played into a personality type that people like know. Yeah, it also came about during this, you know, conception, this media conception of the programmer and Silicon Valley was on the rise and it was kind of cool to work there, but they also they were nerd, but they were programmers. And so, you know, Travis kind of was the king of that media creation. Yeah. I mean, but just let me, this is what's ironic about it. I was, when I left Uber, I was a 45 year old man <laughs> and I, I dated, my wife is, I was dating the whole way through. Travis had two long-term girlfriends. We were not club guys. He doesn't barely drinks. He also looks like such a dork in the Uber driver video too, right? I mean, just, like we, we were just right. normal. Like we bro, bro, we were doing bro. We were just like we we're doing keg stands in the office. Like give me a break. Like uh, we we did get tagged with the bro thing, and it still mystifies me. You know what? How do you have a? Uh, you live in Miami now. You guys like going out? Yeah, I live <laughs> with a two and a half year old, and my parents nearby. Like. Again, if living Miami makes you a bro, then like anyway, I'm not I'm not writing anyone off by being a bro. I'm just trying to analyze, and I I agree. I mean, that was always the funny thing with Travis, where wait, he, he was like 40 for much much of yeah. this, and people treat him like he must have been like some 20 year old or something. Yeah, right. And 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 the line that they needed an adult in the room. Right. Here's the thing I want to ask you, Emil, because and maybe you as well, Eric. The thing that I got the most from talking, reading Mike's book, talking to Mike on the show. I barely watch the Uber show. It's it's really bad. But Bill Gurley and the leakers inside Uber, and maybe you guys to a less effective degree, use the media as a tool to enact your agenda. I saw, you know, the, the reporters as very effective mouthpieces, reported mouthpieces, but, you know, people, good sources leak to the right people to get the things that they wanted to come across. And it ended up being this very public uh, you know, display this very public war, uh, you know, through anonymous sources in the media to kind of fight Travis and I guess potentially fight against Bill Gurley, although again, you guys lost that battle. I mean, what did you learn through that process in the way that reporters are utilized through selective leaks in order to push, you know, an internal agenda. I mean, Mike's even almost kind of upfront about this in the book saying like, you know, before the letter comes out, he gets an anonymous call from someone. Well, he makes Rubenstein like a huge character who honestly, I didn't even talk to. It was a very high profile. Who's Rubenstein? Yeah. That's like the high, very high profile PR firm. Oh, that was like oh, the brought, crisis PR firm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was hired by Gurley and these guys. Do, do um, you know the pivotal point in the book is like who leaked him that Travis was resigning? Saka. Yes. That's who I think. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, that's well, it's a well known amongst the, you know, people. Um, because, because, 
Because the idea is there was a cabal, you know, where it was meant to be more organized. And then Sokka's like, fuck it. Like, let's make sure this thing happens. Yeah. 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 And I don't want to quickly one click thing for say we're all buddies with Mike. We love Mike. I don't think he was like a tool in any sort of dumb way. He's a great reporter and and wrote a story that I think proved to be an accurate version of certain persons of the truth. And and Eric wrote a story corroborating it. But a good story is a good story. Anyway, Emil, look, I... I think I think Mike made a big mistake on the Tim Cook story. That so that I, I I will credit for being not accurate. I think a lot of stuff was accurate. He was like he did get the letter from Sokka before, you know, true. And I I don't know if I have an opinion, Tom, on the leaking on leaking, but I guess that's just how the game's played. I think the thing I didn't expect is internal legals to be working against their management team to such a degree that it was you know it was sort of. Uh, I just didn't expect that kind of disloyalty to be that prominent. And now I've learned my lesson that I was like, holy shit, this is this is what happens, I guess, in political, politically charged situations. Well, there is an amazing like who is Uber like is just because is is Travis like fundamentally Uber because he's CEO or if you think, you know, it you get these really like abstract. I mean, it's. It's it's been an amazing way for me to learn about business, just because yeah. a company is not a singular person. Look, I, look, here's the thing: I would challenge you on. This is why I wish Katie was on because I met Katie. I think it was in late seventeen, and she was telling me that the benchmark partners are saying, "Oh, you guys are going. You and Travis are going to jail, <laughs> and that's the company's going to zero. That's why we have to throw you out. All all these things." And I and Tra- Gurley's running around saying. You're going to be on the right side of history by letting these guys go. Right side of history. This company is going to be worth $100 billion in two years. That's on Twitter. The company's worth half that. Never made that. No one's going to jail, indictment, and like none of that stuff happened. And I, I, I tell people this. I think Benchmark made a huge mistake for their shareholders themselves. This could have been one of the most valuable companies in the world. He agreed to take a leave of absence. There was things that needed to be fixed. And he'll regret it. He he will regret it for the rest of his life and try to make it up. And because it's the only thing like, you know, Stitch Fix, Open Table, Grubhub, all those things are never going to be as important collectively as Uber was to him and his reputation. And I liked Gurley at the time. We talked multiple times a day. A day? A day. We I talked to Gurley, I'm guessing, more than he talked to anyone else. In business. Well, this is where you guys, you guys are like, Gurley didn't have anything to do with the company. And then you're like, I talked to Gurley multiple times a day. I, I did. I, I didn't say you had nothing to do with the company. No, I know. In other interviews, <laughs> I feel like there's been, not nothing, but there there is sometimes an effort to downplay his significance. No, we, he was used very effectively to write blog posts, to, to you know speak at conferences. He and I talked strategy all the time. We disagreed a lot. We agreed a lot. I, he and I both agreed on the autonomous car division stuff. That that was an overinvestment. <laughs> you were very skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember, I think even at the time, you being like, oh, this Waymobile, this is not my deal. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, you know, but I think he just, he got scared. And, you know, I think that's something entrepreneurs have to worry about. If you put $33 million in something that turns into $10 billion in four years, you're not worried about $10 billion turning to twenty. You're worried about losing the $10 billion. So it's like loss right. aversion. I just, I mean, and that's his incentives. I just don't see, I feel like it's easy and I don't want to fall into this myself. Now that Travis is gone to be like, oh, you know, maybe it would have been different. But like, the thing is, I don't see, Travis wasn't giving any sort of escape valve to all sort of the public anger, the sort of internal criticism. Like there was no path. Like 
it really it felt. I mean, he, it was the yeah. leave of absence or nothing. If he, right. that didn't work, if he didn't take that time to come back with a different modality, then that would happen later. Just right. not so, you know, not sooner. But I think he genuinely was going to look. Remember, your mom dies. Your best, you know, one of your best friends and lieutenants gets popped for a totally unfair reason. You're criticizing the media like more than any other person has been criticized at the moment. Taking a leave of absence kind of makes some sense. Right. <laughs> and, and everyone agreed. Why didn't he have a chief operating officer? Like, he, that... you know, ironically, he was we were in a process with diverse partners to hire one. And he was in Chicago interviewing one. If you want to play just like alternate history on all of this, you know, Travis does take his leave of absence. He doesn't get, you know, capoed by Gurley and he comes back and like you say, a different modality. Is that even possible? Do you think Travis really had a different way of running things that could have been fundamentally different for the company? And I ask because Insider reported a piece, I did not report it, uh, that, you know, in Cloud Kitchens, which is Travis's current company, he sort of continued a lot of the cultural and business leadership strategies that a lot of people found problematic at Uber. Seems like he's trying to do things again. And I mean, the conclusion of that story was like he didn't learn anything. Uh, I'm sure you're going to say you don't think that story was accurate or was unfair, blah, blah, blah. But knowing what you do about Travis, is there a version of him that could have come back and actually been different? Look, I think Cloud Kitchens is going to be bigger than Uber. He's got a, the people who went there went for him. Well, that bar keeps lowering, so that's good. That's good for him. Right. Right? <laughs> no, no, but it, but people who went to to Cloud Kitchens wanted to work with someone <laughs> like that, right? And yeah. they loved the values. And by the way, the values that were changed from the Travis Adara era were just you know besides the you know we do the right thing period which was the the number one thing that Dara came in with all the rest were were largely sort of interchangeable like most corporate values are but I think we used to talk about this I remember having conversations with Travis in 2016 and we were talking about when you're when you you know this Reed Hoffman's thing is pirate to I forget what the other thing is you move to but we were talking about how we move the company to be much more of a civilization than a than a tribe, you know, which is one way to think about pirates to sort of a captain of a ship. And we knew that you have to change some of these things, even if you don't want to, or you, you don't think the company is going to be as successful or successful fast because the world can't handle it. There's too many stakeholders. When you get to be a 20,000 person company, cities all over the world, regulators, investors, you just have to be a little more um, moderate, and this is what this is where I give Dar credit. Dar is a great diplomat. He he's, he calmed the waters that allowed the company to go public. Those are all things that would have had we you know, we would have had to do after a leave of absence to actually make the company successful. So, and of course, it's possible if you believe in the mission enough and you know that's what it takes to succeed in the mission. You do that. We just didn't do it soon enough. Well, but that was seems to be the problem, though, is that there weren't there were seems to be a significant contingent of people that didn't think Travis could do that, could be that person. It was, it was benchmark. <laughs> well, no, but there were also people inside the company that were leaking. I mean, you said so yourself. Sure. There were people but what, at the what do they know? They're, they're the same people now who've cut the stock price in half and 90 percent of the people have attrited and they have the same level of investigations and scrutiny just with the nicer guy on top who's more likable. Yeah, I was sort of going to go into the valuation. Yeah. The path to Uber being like a $200 billion company. Like, to some degree, Dara has done some of the things you wanted. He's spun off, you know, 
self-driving. He spun off some of the some of the stuff that wasn't working. Isn't it possible that like he just inherited a business that had sort of a ceiling for how much money it can make? I mean, Uber Pool when you guys were there was like a big part of the future of the company, and driving down prices to increase TAM was so huge to the mission. Pool was basically failed to some degree. Obviously, you were extremely right on food. I know you're going to say invest more, 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 more in in food, but like he basically to build the business you wanted had to move outside of ride sharing and sort of jump from the business you built to other things? Or you think there's some magic trigger on ride sharing that he's failing failing to monetize? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. Losing to DoorDash, the market share lead in the US was a $30 billion mistake. And that happened from 2018 to 2020, square and Dara's you know, tenure. That was, you know, they're worth $30 billion today. They're twice as big as Uber Eats. And that lead was inverted when, when the company was handed to him. Big mistake. That's number one. Number two, I think selling Southeast Asia to Grab was a mistake. That selling, the, selling China and Russia, you had to do in the long term because ultimately the governments were not going to let a local company lose. They let us be second place, but they never let us be first place. Southeast Asia was a different ballgame. But, and he could have beat Kareem also. So instead, he paid $3 billion for Kareem. He paid $3.7 billion for Postmates. Holy cow. That is going to go down as one of the worst deals of this decade. All those things are going to be right down. Jump bike. Well, they wow. they wanted Grubhub, right? I mean, they basically, you know, got second prize in this, you know, the sweepstakes to buy up. Yeah, second second prize was a was a booby prize because right, yeah. that was like it's not even a set of steak knives. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. was like like the that should have been that company was on bankruptcy watch, right? Right. Well, there is an argument that you're propping up food delivery valuations by giving out. Yes. You know, there's a valuation yes. game there. You don't want to if you let Postmates go bankrupt. You might have lost more money in sort of the no, 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 you don't think so? The, but no, 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 no. Uber was still consolidating their financials at that time. You couldn't tell rides from food delivery; they weren't splitting it out. Those acquisitions were just terrible, and that and that dilution, by the way, and the debt Uber has now are really like Uber has more debt than cash right now. It's only one of these companies that has that ratio that's inverted. So the food delivery mistake, but the ride sharing thing is there are profits to be made in that business. You just have to do it efficiently. And there's companies now that are you know called Bolt in Europe and Yassir in um, North Africa and InDriver, who are newer ride share companies who've just built their systems cheaper and they're doing less commissions to drivers and they're eating Uber rides alive in these places. And you're going to see that in 12, 24 months, they're going to have lift size competitors in all the regions where they were dominant. But it would, it would involve cannibalizing their existing business. Sorry, less they, commissions paid by drivers. Right. They're giving drivers more of the profits. They give them more, more of the profits. Okay. Which, which is a very, even harder business. No, no, but, but, but doing it because they're doing a lower cost structure. They're being more efficient. And how they recruit drivers. Yeah. You think there's an efficiency in yes. a rideshare business that can allow drivers to make more money, consumers yes. not to pay more, and Uber make is not able money. to do that? Yes. Interesting. They're doing no layoffs right now, no rifts at Uber right now. 28,000 employees, none. Right now, literally right, right now. now. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that, that is surprising. I mean, 28,000. By the way, you don't need these city teams as much as you did. Back in the day, you needed city teams because you were handing drivers phones. 
to use in their cars. And so, you know, you were doing signing them up. Now all this stuff's online. They're incredibly bloated. And that's a that's an anchor. It's a boat anchor. You can't be doing $25 billion in revenue and making no profits. None. Forget the investments up and down. But you guys, I mean, the Travis era was certainly not the profits era, right? I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. It's not like no. you guys were like about to hit a switch and suddenly there was going to be cash flow coming out the windows. Sure. But we were also weren't public for a reason. We're like, we're going to get to a place where we have the right market share and the right discipline, and then we'll go public. Do you think it was good? For, like the American economy, I mean, interest rates were low. Investors wanted to invest in yeah. growth. You were a natural outcropping in some ways of the economic environment that existed. But like, do you think the American economy should be run in such a way that a company like Uber is given such a long leash to burn through billions to try and sort of figure various things out? I mean, big ideas are always going to cost a lot of money. I mean, you know, SpaceX has raised $4 billion. Tesla's raised $15 billion. Hard to argue that these things aren't innovative and additive to the world. You can, but you could, I could argue the counterpoint too, which is like, Billions of dollars went into driver and rider subsidies. And is that really, that's not a space race or, or you know, we're not building, I know, it, you know. So. It is amazing how much people resent Uber when like drivers and riders both get, got a bunch of free money. That is, a, I feel like nobody gives you credit for that. It's like who got, people talk about it on the, on the rider side, sort of the millennial subsidy, but nobody yeah. really wants to acknowledge that there was like money given to drivers that like. Yeah. Didn't make sense long term. How much do you know? Do you know what is the number for how much Uber has burned through in its lifetime? Do you have a guess? I think the total pay, the total capital is like twenty five billion. When you include the debt, you know, so debt has to be paid back, but that's the money used to finance the business. It's negative twenty five billion right now. If you look in the, I think the paid in capital line on the balance sheet, it's something like twenty five, twenty six billion. Yeah. I mean, in certain ways, I kind of feel like, you know, the Travis Emil era of Uber are, especially now, are in a kind of enviable position to analyze a lot of this stuff. And you can kind of play what would have happened if Travis had stayed because, you know, it, you're not there, right? If the stock price was a hundred bucks, we wouldn't have this conversation. I'd be on a boat. I'd be like, guys, why am I doing this? <laughs> you, you're, you're doing okay, Emil. I'm doing just fine, but I'd be like, this company is a gem. And in my view, it's being it's being Yahoo-fied. Yeah. <laughs> and that's my that's why Expedia I'm fied. And what? they think that I'm doing this because I have a grudge or I'm angry. I don't care. I'm a bigger shareholder than entire management team combined. I wanted to do including well. Dara. Including Dara. And so I care about it doing well. I hate mm -hmm. when it makes mistakes. For the first two years, I was in the background giving Dara advice when he wanted it. I was, I would do nothing but support. Did you, did you go to Bill Ackman and say, let's take it over? I went to every activist on the planet and be like, what does it take to put pressure on a company to do better? And I think, you know, that's still a possibility you'll see out there, but who knows? With you affiliated or? Look, I don't, the, the notion, it's like what, one of the things that Uber said in this Uber Files release they did is like they make actually a big deal about 90% of the Uber employees are different now. That's a 90%, which is like for a tech company, you're like, hello, that's a bad thing. 90% <laughs> attrition sure. is yeah. a bad thing. <laughs> right, that means right. other people have been feasting on Uber talent. Like, give me a break. So the notion of going back in there and doing anything, like trying to reform the culture so it's somewhere in between where it was and where it should be, 
is 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 my, is my I uh, I don't think I could, I don't think I could do that. What, are you still in the spat? I honestly, should, do, what happened with your spat? Or is that should be closing in ten days? Which company did you buy? Or we bought a quantum computing company called D Wave. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 yeah. Well, can we maybe like last two questions on this? I mean, sure. We, we got to bring this plane in for yes, landing at some I know. point. Yeah. Do you yeah. know how it's going to land? Because I don't. Uh... I do. I do. I know what I want to ask. You don't think these losses are an overhang from Uber's aggressive entry into these places that suddenly are having some blowback? What's your statute of limitations, Tom? <laughs> How many years is it not my fault? 10 years from now? 20? <laughs> I don't know. When, when, when is it? When is the buck stop at Dara's desk? When? Mm-hmm. You're not doing... You're, the activist phase is sort of... You're like, I don't want to... That's not happening. Do you have another... I mean, after the SPAC? Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting on three other... No, I'm done with the SPACs thing. I'm sitting on... You know, three other private company boards. I'll be on the public company board with D-Wave and Quantum. I do a lot in the background on on M&A and helping companies raise money. I work with Brex, GoPuff, Revolut, um, some new younger companies that I think can be huge. One called Calshi in New York, one called Dandy Dental. So I got a lot of, I'm trying to play this Bill Campbell role as a chief outside advisor where I'm not on the board, but I can take a young CEO um, and mentor them a little bit, help them with fundraising strategy, M&A, learn from my mistakes, um, navigate the kind of world as it is. Your public reputation, your reputation among like Uber people, I do think like within the Uber world, you're seen as, yeah, sort of a mentor, someone who's been really good at like looking after your ex-employees. I, I, I am willing to say that I do think the sort of contrast between the public and private reputation, especially when it comes to mentorship, is pretty pretty striking. And I would actually add to that, you know, one of the things I've been most struck by in reporting on Uber over the last year is that I find that a lot of current and former employees have very mixed opinions on Travis. Even if they like the era and reminisce about the era, they're conflicted over, you know, the things that they think he's responsible for. And they can, whatever, work that out with their therapists. But <laughs> But I don't get that about you. Almost universally, the people that worked with you feel very fondly about your leadership and, you know, you're you're advising them post-company. And I think that is, you know, a testament to maybe what you've done since you've left Uber and maybe them just putting all of their negative feelings about that error on Travis and not on you. But (laughs) but it's it's consistent. I can tell you that, Emil. Yeah, well, one thing that was important to me to mention is I had one of the most diverse teams at Uber. The women in, who are worked on my team are now partners in VC firms, CEOs. I mean, I really, and that was not me taking care of them. That was just, they, they were great people. Um, I never had complaints about my leadership. It was very, it was the most racially and uh, diverse group in the company. I had the highest rating as a leader and I was proud of that. And yeah, I think me being, you know, I criticize Travis in private, not in public. That's just my style. And did, did you criticize Travis enough? Did you push back on Travis enough, or did he like having people who are sort of like? Yes, man. Yeah, I mean, so I didn't say that word, but yeah, I, I, or he I, doesn't want anyone to say no. I mean, that's yeah, sort so of no, what. I, right. Yeah. So I, I would at least say this on a relative basis. I did more than anyone else in history of giving him feedback, <laughs> whether it was <laughs> investors or other leaders, whatever, because we had a relationship that allowed for that. And I cultivated that on purpose because I wanted to be someone who was able to be a counter voice there. And he listened to me. 
remember just, I know this is hard to imagine. I remember telling people that Uber was 28,000 people. In my group, I had 300 employees. So I didn't have the bulk of the employees. I didn't run HR, operations, legal, finance. I ran business and corporate development. So I read about Grayball in the New York Times. I didn't know about it. I was just not involved in a lot of, I, I didn't know what a kill switch was until I read about it in, in one of your articles. So I was just not involved in lots of the those parts of the businesses that gotten rid about. I was involved in Korea. I was wrong. Hello. I went to a karaoke bar and sang, you know, sweet child of mine. That was me. But I was in I was involved in fundraising and MA. And and unfortunately, I was involved in the press and I shouldn't have been. I was not a good, I don't have a good instinct on. On, on press. And uh, so obviously, like, yeah, I was, not, but, but everything else, like I, I worked hard on, on convincing us to spend as little as we could on the autonomous car stuff. I worked hard on trying to get us to buy Lyft. I worked hard on selling us to deed, selling our operations to Didi, selling our business to Russia. So I, I didn't succeed on the Lyft one. I wish I would. I didn't succeed on buying DoorDash. I wish I succeeded. My last question then. Reflecting as you can on all of this, I mean, do you think Uber, even though you think the company is not particularly well run right now and its value isn't what it should be, blah, 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 has it been a good thing for the world? Do you think, because I really do think Uber is responsible for the gigification and and the whole Uber for X thing exists and will probably never go away because it's a very attractive model one way or the other. Do you think it's been a good thing? I mean, do you think the world is a better place because Uber exists, because you know, contract labor has become de facto in a lot of companies. I, I, by the way, I'm not taking a stance on it. I believe it or not, I do not have a stance on this. <laughs> What's he going to say? No, like <laughs> your tone belies no stance, Tom. Um, so, so of course it's a good thing. Look, the, I, I think over time, if you did a longitudinal study 10 years from now, the number of drunk driving deaths that Uber has uh, helped avoid and ride sharing has, will be dramatic. The ability for people to live in the outer boroughs of cities and reliably get to jobs is going to be how you measure that would be incredible. If you ask any person of color in New York City what the taxi system was like before Uber and how, and you say, we're going to take away ride sharing from you, you will get uh, like some visceral responses of how, how discriminatory the system was, not only in our country, but around the world. So there are lots of good things. Now, when you talk about the labor piece and the gigification piece, I don't know. People work differently. Is it because of Uber? Did Uber cause gigification in the world? That seems kind of nuts. Like, it just seems like one of the things that happened. And by the way, it's not like these taxi jobs were great. <laughs> it's like you displaced a shitty, like a really shitty job with something that was less bad. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, net, net, it was better for the world, for sure. Mm-hmm. Great. Strong sense. I love it. I love it. Well, <laughs> All right. Thank you. This was so much. This was, I'm glad. Somehow I need to find a way to, you know, after a big, we had Parker Conrad on our first one, which was also like one of my foundational scan. I do think like, yeah, people in scandals, you should just come on in the moment. I feel like it's better to like, don't just let the headlines destroy you. Or don't you wish you'd been out there more like during this period? Yeah, I do. But I, I do wish on the Korea thing, the Korea thing was such a garbage that I wish I was just like, look, here's what happened. I made a mistake. I admitted it at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't what it just. The, you know, if you want to crucify me for that, you better not live in a glass house because anyone who does business in Korea goes to these things. And, you know, if you want to judge me, judge everyone else the same. Right. Right. But I do think this one thing for you, Eric, because I know you're your best buds with Gurley. Was he on the right side of history or not? 
And the same question you asked me, Tom, is like, oh, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say you could have done better. Ask him the same question. Well, yeah, he. He's, <laughs> I agree. To me, the 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 fundamental model of things are the the criticisms that will stand the test of time. Where I'm on the more, I'm, Tom's not going to say what he thinks, but clearly I'm more a defender of the model and have have sort of been more open about that post uh, Bloomberg. But um, I'm just in favor of the great story. But but anyway, Emil, uh, don't don't believe yourself. You are very good at talking to the media. I hope you continue to do it. <laughs> uh, thanks much. Okay, guys. Good talk. See you. So thanks. All right. See you. Goodbye. 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 Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.